0: In his article on Darwin, published in 1874, Asa Gray, one of the first traditionally religious botanists and natural historians who embraced evolution by natural selection, stated that we recognize the great service rendered by Darwin to natural science by restoring teleology to it. Therefore, he says... So that instead of having morphology against teleology, we shall uh, have henceforth morphology married to teleology. To which Darwin replied, saying, what you say about teleology pleases me, especially because it seems that I do not think anyone else has ever noticed the point. More than this, similar was the opinion uh, of uh, his son, Francis, uh, the editor of Darwin's autobiography, who says this. One of the greatest services rendered by my father to the study of natural history is the revival of teleology. And even more surprising is uh, the fact that to support this thesis, Francis Darwin refers to no one else but a declared naturalist and agnostic, Thomas Huxley, who says something similar to what he Francis uh, and Asa uh, have said before. Perhaps the most remarkable service to the philosophy of biology rendered by Mr. Darwin, says Huxley, is the reconciliation of teleology and morphology. Well, this may sound surprising also when we think about Darwin himself, because both in his officially published works and in his private correspondence, we find Darwin being rather perplexed and rather uncertain about his opinion on teleology. So on the one hand, we find Darwin who says that every detail of structure has been produced for the good of its possessor, which seems like a teleological claim, or on another occasion, in the same uh, book, On the Origin of Species, he says, as natural selection works solely by by and for the good of each being, all corporeal and mental end- endowments will tend to progress towards perfection. Again, sounds teleologically. Yet at the same time, in the same work, Darwin would say, this, in my theory, there is no absolute tendency to progression, uh, excepting from favorable, uh, favorable circumstances. Therefore, any broad view of, pur- of purposefulness in evolution would be absolutely fatal to his theory, says Charles Darwin. And in one of his late letters, uh, he, we may say, concludes his uh, thoughts on the teleology saying this, my theology is a simple model." I cannot look at the universe as the result of blind chance, yet I can see no evidence of beneficent uh, design or indeed of design of any kind in the detail. This ambiguity makes it difficult, I think, uh, to specify the exact position of Darwin in the philosophical dispute between Descartes, Bacon and Spinoza, Uh, who rejected final causes, calling them barren virgins dedicated to God, and Leibniz and Kant, on the other hand, who tried to defend the concept of goal-directedness in nature. Now, the the course taken by neo-Darwinism is clear and transparent. The line of reasoning that uh, had its foundation in 1869 in von Helmholtz's Praise for Darwin Uh, for bringing the study of biological form under the ambit of mechanism, found its culmination uh, or culmination in a 100 years later in 1969 in the position of David Hull, who declares that from the point of view of contemporary biology, both vitalism and teleology are stone-cold dead. Now, despite Quine's philosophical objections to such reductionist dogma, Teleology retained its bad reputation in the second half of the 20th century among many philosophers and scientists who suggested to simply replace teleology with chance. Driven to the extreme, this position led Richard Dawkins to formulate his famous metaphysical manifesto in which he declares that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is At bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless, indifference. However, this anti teleological crusade characteristic for logical positivism is mostly over. A number of contemporary philosophers of biology acknowledge that Darwin was in fact a teleologist and did not raise chance and randomness to the point of being causa prima of evolutionary changes. Moreover, teleology was reintroduced in the 20th century evolutionary synthesis as its indispensable feature. Now, to understand the role of teleology in Darwin's reflection and in contemporary understanding of evolutionary uh, transitions, we need to begin with some crucial terminological clarifications. We need, I claim, to distinguish between teleology, uh, and we need to distinguish teleology from the concept of design and function. These are categories which are unfortunately often lumped together into an argument called interchangeably, an argument from teleology or from design. And I claim that was the case in time of Darwin, and that was the source of confusion. And these terms, in turn, should be distinguished from the concept of vital forces or vitalism. So let's begin with teleology. What is teleology about? Aristotle uh, defines teleology or final cause as that for the sake of which a thing is done or a good that can be attained uh, and that is proper for a given being. What is crucial for us here is that Teleology, thus understood, should not be understood as a mysterious, quasi-efficient cause acting from the future on the present, a sort of pre-established harmony. Rather, it should be understood as natural tendency, goal-directedness or purposefulness of things to realize what is proper to their nature. Therefore, in addition to that, that Aristotle would say that this tendency does not have to be known or intended by a conscious agent. This is crucial. Therefore, Aristotle would say it is absurd to suppose that purpose is not present because we do not observe the agent deliberating on that purpose. Now, from a theological point of view, Aquinas Speaking of teleology, he refers it to God and he speaks about God as the source and goal of all teleological phenomena in nature. All things desire God as their end, he says, when they desire some good thing, whether this desire be intellectual, which is the case of human beings, or sensible, the case in case of other animals, or natural, in case of plants and inanimate objects. So this is teleology. Uh, which is referred to God by Aquinas. What is crucial in this classical understanding of teleology is this. The point of departure for us is a thing acting for an end, a thing that is goal-directed in what it does. Teleology, which is a principle, principle or cause explaining such action performed by a given thing, is a natural idea emphasize it, natural and intrinsic principle or cause. And therefore, when referred to God, we may speak of it uh, as being uh, caused at the same time by God, who acts as the source and ultimate goal of all teleology, but he does that through natural teleology, which is characteristic of all, once again, inanimate and animate creatures what is important here is that in this predication uh, we think about god god's divine action and god's teleology uh, which draws all all the things towards him in analogical way And it is crucial, once again, God works here through secondary causes. So he, as as the first cause of all teleology, works through teleology that is present in nature, in creatures, and he does that, once again, as a first cause working through secondary causes. This is radically different from what happens when we think about the argument from design and function. The point of departure is slightly different here. Because the point of departure is, or are, biological structures in terms of their complexity and order. Okay? What, and then this complexity and order leads those who form this argument to assume the functionality of biological structures. They must be formed and put together for a purpose. And then they take another step and say that we, they, th- there is a need, therefore, for a purposeful and intelligent extrinsic agent behind complexity, order, and functional ends of biological structures. So you see the considerable difference in this uh, sort of uh, argument. I want to claim that there is therefore an intrinsic tendency of the design and function argument, or within this argument, to speak about divine action in univocal terms and not analogical. Just as the watch must have a maker as says William Paley, there must have existed, which means there must have existed at some time, at at some place or other, an artificer uh, or artificers who formed it for the purpose which we find it actually to answer. So there must be God on the grand scale who in some ways intervenes in nature and brings order and structures uh, into existence. So this is a univocal, rather a univocal way of uh, predication about uh, God's action. Now we may ask the question whether Paley, William Paley, who is one of the uh, important authors or or supporter of in uh, of uh, the design argument at the time of Darwin, whether he thought of divine action in univocal terms. So actually, Paley was more uh, sophisticated. And you will find in his uh, important main book places where he actually tends to refer to secondary and instrumental action of creatures. This is the quote that I that you have on the screen right now, one of the examples. Whatever is done, God could have done without the intervention of uh, instruments or means, but it is in the construction of instruments that a creative intelligence intelligence is seen. This is something that Thomas Aquinas would agree with. But at the same time, I think that the way the argument from design is structured has this, I would say, danger to think about divine action in univocal terms. And therefore, this tendency to speak of divine action in this way, in univocal terms, I claim is definitely characteristic of the contemporary version of the same argument proposed under the label of intelligent design. Because the argument there brought by intelligent design uh, uh, supporters is that science tells us that there are no natural causes for the apparent cases of complexity, order, and functionality in biological structures, which means there needs to be or there must be a transcendental cause that makes those things happen directly. Now, this should be still distinguished from one more Category or argument, uh, the argument that refers to or introduces the concept of vital forces, vital uh, spark or energy or élan vital. Back in back in seventeenth century, in response to British version of mechanicism, and to Thomas Hobbes in particular, one of the so-called Cambridge Platonists, uh, Ralph Cadworth, introduced the concept of plastic nature a non-material yet non-intelligent cause or principle of living creatures. This gave the origin to the British version of vitalism further developed by John Ray in relation to its German version in the writings of Caspar Friedrich Wolff, the father of epigenesis in embryology. Now, what is important for us is that vitalism has its revival in 19th century in the time of Darwin. First in Germany, in reference to further development of embryology in the writings of Hans Driesch, but also in reference to Darwin's theory of, of evolution. This time in France, in the writings of Henri uh, Louis Bergson, who introduces the concept of élan vital as a kind of vital impetus which explains evolution. Having we having distinguished. Uh, between, once again, teleology, uh, design and function, and vitalism, we now should go back to Darwin and ask once again about his opinion on these categories and about his uh, understanding of of teleology. So going back to Darwin, on the one side, or the one hand, we find uh, Michael Giselin, uh, who offers a critical evaluation of the point made by Asa Gray, Francis Darwin, and Thomas Huxley, with which I started uh, or opened this lecture. He says this, a myth grown up that Darwin somehow brought teleology back into biology. But the truth is that he did the exact opposite, getting rid of teleology and replacing it with a new way of thinking about adaptation, says Michael Giesel. One might argue with him that Darwin's agreement with Gray's comment when he said, oh, I like the comment that I actually bring teleology back to the picture. One might argue that this was motivated by, by Darwin's trying to smooth over differences and controversies within the Darwinian camp. However, one of the um, best specialists, uh, both in Aristotelian biology and contemporary philosophy of biology, James Levox, he says, he sees or says that to see in Darwin's response to Gray a piece of political maneuvering on his part simply will not work because... Together with him, we find another group of philosophers of biology who actually acknowledge that there must be something going on if Huxley, a stark enemy of the teleological argument from design, actually praises Darwin for reconciling teleology and morphology. So Lennox draws our attention to the fact that Darwin actually throughout his main work consistently argues that natural selection acts for the good of each being and its pr- its products are present for various functions purposes and ends and look how many references you have uh, in the brackets here so it's not just one place he repeats it uh, several times and th- that makes Lennox to conclude and suggests that suggests that Darwin essentially reinvented teleology He was encouraged by many uh, close followers to drop the term natural selection, but Darwin steadfastly refused. Why? Because he saw that natural selection permits the extension of teleology of domestic breeding into the natural domain without the need of conscious design. Once again, in a historical context where once teleological choices were either the goals of goal-directed vital forces, revival of vitalism, or divinely designed adaptation as as pale uh, pale you wanted. No one was prepared, says Lennox, Mm -hmm. for Darwin's accomplishment, which was a selection-based teleology. Similar actually was uh, an argument once again brought by Huxley, who says that while Darwin's theory had dealt the death blow to special creation with God directly intervening in nature, we must say, says Huxley, that there is a wider teleology which is not touched by the doctrine of evolution, but is actually based upon the fundamental proposition of evolution. And that would be Aristotelian natural teleology that is present uh, in nature. Similar argument was developed by another expert in philosophy of biology, Harry Smith, and his conclusion is similar to the one brought by Lennox and where he says we can understand teleology without referring to a designer. Uh, And this is uh, the contribution of Darwin. He eliminated the concept of design and rehabilitated Aristotelian teleological explanations. So this idea of lumping together design and teleology and design understood as God directly intervening in nature, Darwin separated these and brought back into the picture Aristotelian notion of natural uh, teleology. So we may say, therefore, that Darwin indeed was a teleologist. He became a teleologist when, first, he rejected the functionality of biological structures understood as directly introduced by God, uh, as perfect and fixed And once perfect fixed and once uh, and introduced once and for all. And he rejected this idea based on the empirical research, which shows that new types of organisms actually replace preceding ones, which would mean that the old design was actually not very, not the perfect design. And it should be perfect because it's uh, God's design. Uh, Another argument against uh, the argument of. Uh, from design as it was understood in the time of Darwin. Uh, another argument came from differences among organisms, organisms belonging to the same bi- biological type, but present in different parts of the world. These were the studies of nearly identical deep cave environments in Europe and America. So he claimed there is no universal design for a given type. And the third argument from uh, vestigial uh, organs, once again, imperfection of the design. So based on these arguments, Darwin rejects, uh, once again, uh, the argument from design as introduced by God, perfect and fixed uh, once and for all. He also rejects vitalism, that is, goal-directed vital forces. And what he does, once again, Uh, Having rejected those two categories, he actually keeps teleology in the picture and restores Aristotelian notion of natural teleology. Uh, Another expert in philosophy of biology, Alan Gotthelf, therefore claims this. There is an isomorphism between Darwin's biological vision and Aristotle's. There is much in Darwin's biological theorizing that reflects what one gets if one imagines Aristotle having to accept into his system full evidence of the evolution of species and a more powerful biochemistry than was projectable in his time. That is a claim, once again, that uh, Darwin does not reject uh, teleology. However, despite the this evidence for teleological aspects of Darwin's theory, which actually are rediscovered in contemporary conversation and they got lost uh, throughout, uh, especially uh, at the beginning, or they were actually simply not seen by many. So despite this evidence for the tele- teleological aspects of Darwin's theory, The success of molecular molecular and cell biology, biochemistry, and genetics inspired not only the reductionist program of logical positivism, but also some reductionist and fairly reductionist interpretations of evolutionary theory. And it all created, unfortunately, the image of Darwin as promoting pure mechanicism and materialism. However, this reductionist and anti theological view of biological evolution, as I said in the beginning, was found as being highly problematic and inconsistent. Uh, and it has become evident for many already in the 20th, the second half of the 20th century. But the way back to the acknowledgement of the role of finality and goal directedness in evolutionary transitions was not straightforward. The first signs of the recovery of teleology in biology came with the work of important evolutionary biologists, Theodosius Dobrzeinski, Ernst Meyer, and Francisco Ayala. So these are the fathers of the 20th century evolutionary synthesis. So the first one of them, uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky, uh, he simply notes that mutation alone, uncontrolled by natural selection, would result in the breakdown and eventual extinction of life, not in the adaptive or progressive evolution. Francisco Ayala, uh, who actually have been uh, has been trained in classical uh, philosophy and theology he was a dominican and left the order right after his ordination uh, he notes and emphasizes that natural selection is not only a purely negative mechanistic and directed process that promotes the useful and gets rid of harmful mutants increasing thus reproductive efficiency quite contrary says ayala emphasizes that natural selection is creative in a way, because it produces adaptive genetic combinations which would not have existed otherwise. That leads him to conclude that natural selection is actually teleological, in the sense that it produces and maintains and directed organs and processes. So he brings actually the very term of teleology back to evolutionary theory, which is a no considerable contribution and considerable and strong argument. Now, this attempt to legitimize teleology again was criticized by Ernst Meyer because he claimed that uh, teleology seen as efficient cause. And this is the way he saw it is something is a cause acting from the future on the present. So therefore, uh, he claimed that teleology as it was understood in classical uh, philosophy and biology, it's not acceptable. Uh, he suggests it should be replaced by uh, another terms that he uh, suggests. And these are teleonomy, which he defies as a process of behavior that owes his goal directedness to the operation of a program, that would be a genetic disposition for him. And the second term he suggests is teleomatics, which is uh, even more spontaneous process that reaches an end state uh, caused by simply natural laws. This is uh, obviously an approach that is uh, inspired by a cybernetic move uh, at the second half of the 20th century, but it is doubtful uh, for at least one reason – uh, well, we may ask a simply a question. If what stands behind teleonomy is a program, then what is this program and who designed this program? Right? This is the charge uh, against it. And interestingly enough, uh, he was not the first one to coin or to introduce the term teleonomy, which is still uh, present in philosophy of biology today. Actually, it was called pit and dry. Uh, who uh, coined the term uh, teleonomy. And in his letter to Meyer, and uh, said this, that teleology in its Aristotelian form has, of course, the end as immediate efficient cause. And this is precisely what the biologists cannot accept. So we can see uh, that what we are dealing here with is an example of the post humean Reduction of the complex fourfold Aristotelian notion of causality to the efficient cause alone. If an end state operated simply as efficient cause, we would not and we would know we would have no reason to speak about final causes. So the whole point here is to say that this is a different type of causality, and unfortunately, Pitt and Dry does not understand it. And it's kind of Frustrating that Ayala, having introduced teleology once again and having argued in favor of theology, he actually succumbs to this way of thinking at one point at least where he claims, in reference to Ernst Nagel, that teleological explanations can be reformulated without loss of explicit content to take the form of non-teleological ones. So I rather disagree with this claim. Uh, So it all tells you how how complex and how uh, difficult was the way to reintroduce teleology in the 20th century uh, uh, synthesis of of biological evolutionary uh, theory. Now, what is the uh, current status of uh, teleology? Because it was reintroduced by uh, Dobzhansky, Ayala, and Meyer into uh, evolutionary theory. So... Uh, Thinking about uh, nowadays time, so on the one hand, we have what we may call them teleonaturalists who uh, claim that references to teleology in biological explanation are burdened with the error of anthropomorphism. According to them, the very uh, category of finality or purposefulness is appropriate for psychology, social sciences, and economics. Where it grants the language of motivational and functional explanations. But in case of biology, following Meyer, they claim we can speak maybe about quasi purposeful character of teleonomy, but not teleology as Aristotle had it. Yet on the other hand, we find those whom we may uh, classify as teleologists who actually claim that the deductive nomological and deductive statistical probabilistic models of explanation in science are replaced even in biology, not only supported by, but even replaced in biology, not only by genetic, historical, and structural, that is based on analysis of parts within a whole explanations, but also they are replaced by functional and teleological types of explanation. They claim that our study of living systems should take into account goal-directedness, direct, goal because natural and normative, yet free from anthropomorphism, goals manifest in the functioning and life of creatures. One of the great supporters of uh, teleology in contemporary philosophy of biology is Dennis Walsh, Uh, who in the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy of Biology argues, in the chapter on teleology, he argues that teleology from the contemporary point of view can be observed in the adaptiveness and phenotypic plasticity of organisms which are manifested in their self-organizing goal-directedness and capacity to make compensatory changes uh, to form or physiology during their lifetime. For example, acclimatization or an immune response. On the level of evolutionary changes, lineages undergo selection to thus become ever more suited to the conditions of their environments, says Walsh. And therefore... Uh, Following Dobzhansky and Ayala and Meyer, at least in a way, Walsh shows that the Darwinian processes of iterated mutations and selection do not provide a satisfactory explanation for adaptive evolution that you need to refer to teleology. And Walsh by no means uh, is an isolated thinker uh, when it comes to teleology or argued in favor of teleology. Uh, there's an a whole entire group of uh biologists, uh, philosophers of biology who think in this way. So we may say that teleology is back uh in uh the picture uh when it comes to biology and also evolutionary biology. But my analyze, analysis so far shows that those who argue in favor of teleology in the context of contemporary evolutionary theory, they usually invoke what? Natural selection as being te- teleological. You remember I, I, I mentioned that Ayala was the first one to say this. He says natural selection is goal-directed in a way. It's, it supports you know those uh, ideas about structure that will be helpful or are helpful for an organism. Now this so we may someone may may say that once again following Ayala that that the law of natural selection is teleological and this is where we locate teleology in the contemporary version of evolutionary theory well classically oriented metaphysics and I would consider myself to belong to this camp well we ask a question about the status here of the laws of nature so we would be very or rather careful to say that this is natural selection that is teleological. We may here refer uh, to William uh, Taylor, a Jesuit, uh, unfortunately a deceased uh, physicist, physicist and uh, theologian who contributed a lot to uh, the dialogue between science and uh, theology. And on numerous occasions, uh, he emphasized that the laws of nature are epistemological descriptions rather than ontological prescriptions, which means laws of nature, they don't make things happen. They describe the way things operate. They name regularities in nature, which are uh, embedded in nature, but they don't make things to happen in one way or the other. So here is the quotation from one of his papers. He says this, Although the laws of nature reveal and describe fundamental patterns of behavior and regularities in the world, we cannot consider them the source of those regularities, nor can we ascribe to them an existence independent of the reality whose behavior they describe. Instead, I claim that they are imperfect, abstract descriptions of physical phenomena, not prescriptions dictating or enforcing behavior so when we if we tr- if if we accept this understanding of laws of nature then it would be rather strange to say that uh, natural selection is a cause of anything and natural selection is t- teleological right therefore my claim would be that teleology which is indeed indispensable for evolutionary transitions is not so much located or grounded in natural selection, but rather in organisms themselves that which uh, organisms strive to survive and produce a fertile offspring. This is the starting point for evolutionary theory. Organisms that strive to survive and produce fertile offspring. And only when you have this, you may introduce spontaneous changes and natural selection that operate on this material. But once again, you have to depart from organisms that uh, strive to survive and produce fertile offspring. And this is where teleology is located and without which there is no evolution. So oftentimes we simply assume those organisms being, organisms being there as the beginning uh, or at the bottom of evolutionary uh, transitions, but we, As philosophers, we cannot just take them for granted. We have to reflect on what they are. And actually, my claim finds support. Álvaro Moreno and Matteo Mossio, philosophers of science and of biology, they say this. If we look for the roots of the impressive capacity of life to proliferate, we shall focus on individual living entities, namely on organisms, because evolution as an explanatory mechanism mechanism actually presupposes the existence of organisms. Uh, So they, in a way, uh, I believe, uh, stand with me. Um, More than this, the contemporary studies on the relationship between evolution and development and uh, the theory of uh, epigenetics, I don't have time in this lecture to go with respect to these uh, studies in philosophy of biology, and in biology and philosophy of biology, and they also support the same claim, to the extent that uh, already in 1996, Gilbert, Opitz, and Raff, they say this. The evidence for evolution is better than ever, but the role of natural selection in evolution is seen to play less an important role, based on Evo-Devo studies and epigenetics. It is merely a filter for unsuccessful morphologies generated by development so they uh with a number of other philosophers uh, of biologists and philosopher uh, philosophers of biology they they envision the need of formulating maybe in even in a near future a new uh synthesis of uh, evolutionary uh bio, of evolutionary transitions where natural selection will be there obviously but it won't pay, uh, play as play huge role as it played uh for uh for Darwin himself. So one more word on evolution now and the interplay of teleology and chance. Because because I defended the view that Darwin did not dismiss teleology altogether. So to that I want to add that neither did Darwin uh, think that chance uh, is the only one agent in uh in uh evolutionary transitions. Actually, it's similar as with teleology, uh, with respect respect to uh, chance, Darwin was a little bit perplexed, I think. Look what he says. He says, chance alone, uh, one might say, could make a difference in a given trait of an organism with respect to its parents, but it would never be enough to explain the fundamental difference between species belonging to the same genus. Once again, this is again on the origin of species, he says, I have sometimes spoken as if the variations were due to chance. This is, of course, uh, this, of course, is a wholly incorrect expression, but it serves to acknowledge plainly our ignorance of the cause of each particular variation. So this is a very strong claim, which actually sounds as if Darwin thought that chance is not real. It is just our lack of knowledge about causes. I don't think that was his position. I, I, I tend to think that Darwin believed in the ontological character of chance, but I think he simply acknowledges here what, in a slightly more precise language, we acknowledge today, I mean, those who work and look at evolutionary theory from the classical uh, point of uh, view, where we would say that ontologically real chance events that produce minor variations, they which are crucial for the uh, evolutionary transitions and changes. They remain in a synergy with the regularity and teleological character of life cycles and transmission of features between generations. So instead of having either divinely designed teleology where God, like, you know, uh, directly designs things in nature on the one hand or pure chance on the other hand, we actually have both teleology and chance, but where teleology is not understood in, once again, direct divine intervention, but as a natural principle, a characteristic of each organism that once again strives to survive and produce fertile offspring. So therefore, evolution cannot be attributed to a blind chance, which would actually mean giving up the possibility to explain the the, uh, reality. So coming to uh, the conclusion, uh, I would like to once again emphasize that uh, I believe that Darwin did not reject uh, teleology. He, as uh, Lennox uh, says, I think he, I agree with him that Darwin actually reinvents teleology, but once again, as a natural principle. And in conclusion, I would like to refer uh, or bring one last quotation, again coming from uh, Dennis Walsh. The Aristotelian purge was seen as a a pivotal achievement of early modern science. As a consequence of the scientific revolution, the natural sciences learned to live without teleology. But current evolutionary biology, I contend, says uh, Walsh, demonstrates that quite the opposite lesson needs to be learned today. The understanding of how evolution can be adaptive requires us to incorporate teleology, issuing from the goal-directed adaptive plasticity of organisms as a legitimate scientific form of explanation. This is a very strong claim. He says, legitimate scientific form of explanation. The natural sciences must once again, says Walsh, learn to leave with a teleology.